The title of today's message, Thanksgiving or Fearing. Thanksgiving or Fearing. A spirit of thanksgiving is born out of faith. A spirit of fear, a spirit of anxiety, a spirit of worry, a spirit of complaining about our fears, anxieties, and worries is born out of unbelief. And so we need, by the grace of God, to disallow ourselves that, that spirit or disposition of fear and worry and anxiety that leads to complaining more than praying. Prayer is an exercise of faith. Complaining, by and large, is an exercise of unbelief. So thanksgiving or fearing, we are very often on one side or the other, and all too often we're on the side of fear, not on the side of thankfulness. Now, most of you gathered here today aren't Jewish. I personally am not Jewish. None of us are Moses. If you think you're Moses, see me afterwards. (laughs) However, there's much we can learn from Moses and the Jews as our spiritual forefathers. There's much we can learn about thanksgiving, faith, fear, and unbelief from Moses and Israel. Fear is in the air today. It's the disease of the hour. It's the pandemic affecting the world, a pandemic of fear. Fear mongers are harder at work in the press than ever before. If it bleeds, it leads, right? Well, yes, that's the norm. But now if it causes fear and anxiety and worry and terror, it leads. Fear mongers are hard at work, not just in the press, but in the evangelical Christian world as well. What are we caught up fearing? We fear COVID. We fear COVID-19. We fear pandemic. We fear coronavirus. We fear the vaccine. We fear vaccine side effects. We fear the vaccine mandates. We fear the unvaccinated. We fear mask mandates. We fear the unmasked. We fear inflation. We fear rising gas prices. We fear rising prices on meat, milk, eggs, cheese, and everything else. We fear communist insurrection taking place in Washington, D.C. We fear communist China's growing threat to its neighboring nations and the world. We fear a government-backed, weaponized, radical, homosexual agenda to pervert and mutilate our children and criminalize biblical morality criminalize biblical parenting, and criminalize biblical preaching. We fear Antifa and BLM rioters burning down our cities. We fear the overthrow of our constitutional republic. We fear church closures. We fear a civil war. We fear the scorn of our neighbors for our noncompliance with the growing Antichrist agenda and tyranny. We fear standing up for Jesus. We fear standing up for his law. We fear standing up for his gospel. We fear the scorn of an unbelieving world. So much fear. And fear, mind you, is born out of self-love. Fearlessness comes when we 
are filled with the love of God and the love of neighbor. There's no room left for fear because we're busy loving the Lord and seeking His glory and His honor and His praise. We're busy seeking the betterment and blessing of our fellow man when we're full of the love of God and the love of neighbor. Now, when it comes to learning from Moses and from Israel, Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever things are written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 4 is talking about the Old Testament, talking about the history of the Jews. And that we might learn much as a New Testament church and New Testament Christians from our spiritual forefathers in Israel. And so let's start with, and we're going to be kind of traipsing through the Old Testament a bit. Let's start with Psalm 95. Psalm 95, a wonderful worship psalm that is very instructive on this regard of thanksgiving or fearing. Psalm 95 says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. You know what is interesting? For those hyper-spiritual, hyper-reformed, it's often the reformed, and I am reformed in soteriology and so many other ways, and I'm a reformer by conviction. But sometimes in those hyper-spiritual, hyper-reformed circles, worship must be akin to a death dirge, like you're at a perpetual funeral, or it's not holy. You just don't find that in Scripture. You find all sorts of instruments, you find all sorts of joy, and you find all sorts of volume, some volume. They're turning it up because they're excited about worshiping and praising the Lord. They're making some noise about it, just like we make noise for virtually every other thing we're interested in. Everything else that we're excited about, we make noise about. Whether we're cheering at a wedding, at the conclusion thereof, or we're cheering at a sports event, or we're cheering for our child's play where they got half the lines wrong, whatever it might be. We get excited, we tend to get loud. So, Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, the rock, the foundation, the immovable source of our salvation. Shout joyfully to Him. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, tune in here, saints. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
This is a psalm of worship. And it opens up rather worshipful, but it ends in a way that is foreign to our modern worship. It ends with an indictment, which is a reminder perpetually to all of Israel and all the saints of God for all time that we are to walk with the Lord in faith, not fear. We cannot actually walk with the Lord in fear because we're walking in the flesh. So we, by the grace of God, embrace faith and a disposition of thanksgiving, even as we read in Philippians chapter 4 about being anxious in nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, right? So we're anxious in nothing. We take the nothing, the anxious box, and we take everything out of it because we're to be anxious in nothing. And then we take the faith box, the prayer box, and everything goes into that, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, we go before the Lord. And so... We put off fear and we put on faith and we end up with thanksgiving because the Lord there promises us a peace that surpasses understanding in or through Christ Jesus. Psalm 95 opens up so worshipful that they're shouting joyfully to the rock of their salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. He has saved us. He has saved us. It's worthy of volume. It's worthy of of getting loud about. And then the psalm gets particularly sweet in verse 6 and 7, and it's become a modern worship song for us as well. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. He our shepherd, we His sheep, precious to Him. He's our master. He's our provider. He cares for us. And then tragically, the psalm takes a turn in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial of wilderness when the fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. See, we may start out shouting joyfully praises to God for our salvation. We may be deeply spiritual in verse 6, worshiping and bowing down and kneeling before the Lord, our Maker as our God, and we, His sheep, glad to follow Him wherever He would lead us. But our hearts are prone to wander. We are prone to act as foolish sheep. And so the Lord includes in this worship psalm a warning to not harden our hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. You see, in the midst of the trial, they stopped shouting the Lord's praises and they stopped humbly bowing before Him in faith as their good shepherd and they the sheep of His hand. In the midst of the trial, rebellion grew up in their hearts. Fear caused rebellion. And that's the problem of justifying fear. In this circumstance, I can be fearful. In this circumstance, I can fill that anxious box that Philippians 4 says, put nothing in. Be anxious in nothing. Well, in this circumstance, I can just fill that box to the brim because it's justified in this circumstance. That is so incredibly dangerous for your precious soul. 
Because you will move from shouting the Lord's praises for He is the rock of your salvation. You'll move from humbly bowing before your Lord and your God, recognizing you are the sheep of His hand that He cares for, that He loves, that He died for and rose for and intercedes for. You'll be moved in the midst of that trial, that hardship, through fear, through unbelief, to rebellion. It's a quick step. It's a quick hop. It's a quick jump. And thus, you must master your heart and bring your heart beneath the master and disallow your heart anxiety. Disallow your heart the fear and the worry that we so often would justify depending on these particular circumstances, whatever those circumstances are for you. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. They saw his works. They saw his ways. They heard his voice. They saw his power, infinite and glorious, miraculous power. And yet they feared and pulled back in unbelief and then graduated to rebellion. And that's the path that so many go down, not just historically in Israel, but presently, today. And many will go down it. Many will go down it. The New Testament warns us about a great falling away when the tribulation comes, when hardship comes, when persecution of Christians and Christianity comes. There will be a great falling away. And there will be all sorts of justifications. I mean, it's only reasonable. Look at the circumstances. And so we're warned not to harden our hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial of the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. For 40 years, God killed them off. For 40 years, God brought judgment upon them until they were dead. And the generation behind them could enter into the promised land. They brought judgment upon themselves. They looked into the promised land, but never entered. They sent spies in. The spies came back with a negative report, at least most of them, two faithful, Joshua and Caleb. But the others, oh no, there are giants in the land. We'll all die. They feared. And they put the giants in what box? The anxiety box. It's justified, clearly justified. And so they did what? They feared. They spread the fear. They told everybody, oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. Moses, Joshua, Caleb are going to lead us to our death. So they led what? A rebellion. A rebellion. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. What do we need in our nation? Do we need the body of Christ to fear and to pull back and to rebel against Christ? No, we need the body of Christ to fear God alone and no man and to press in to obey Christ the King, and to go, therefore, and make disciples, to turn the world upside down, not to pull back, but to press in. Not to say, oh no, this society is against us. This society is maligning the Word of God as evil, and the God of the Word is evil, and anyone who would walk according to the light thereof as evil, bigots, and misogynists, and haters, and homophobes. And we better pull back. No, we had better press in. We'd better take those fears and move them over 
into the faith box by praying and supplicating and giving thanksgiving for the opportunity to do our duty. To run our lap. To take this little light that Christ has given us in a world that is darker than that world which our parents lived in and to set it up in that darkness on a hill that it might shine brilliantly in the night. Let's walk with Moses and Israel through this experience and kind of unpack that experience for our own edification. We'll begin in Exodus chapter 3 in verse 1, Exodus 3 verse 1. We'll pick up with Moses tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Exodus 3 verse 1, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, who is that we learned last week? The Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So who is the angel of the Lord? God, just reiterating that again. It is God the Son in the bush calling to Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds like that land's already inhabited. This is going to be a problem. Verse 9. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, wait, wait, you're going to take us to a land already inhabited, and you're sending me to Pharaoh, the the mightiest ruler of all the land, who has enslaved Israel, and I'm just to go tell him to set your people free, Lord? Now, this is an opportunity for what? Fear or faith? Thanksgiving? Or faith. This is exciting. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to serve you in such a pivotal way. This is glorious. I'm unworthy, but here, my Lord, send me. Thank you. Or terror, just sheer terror. I'm unworthy. I'm unable. It's not going to work. There's so many problems with this plan, Lord. Come on. Be reasonable. I'm just a man. Fear or faith? Thanksgiving for an opportunity or anxiety and worry and stress and, you know, maybe go to your, your wife and your neighbors and say, can you believe what God's asking me to do here? I mean, this is, this is just really over the top. This is impossible. This isn't going to work. Not at all. Two impossible tasks. Rescue Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt and then go with this slave people 
who are used to being slaves, not a mighty, victorious warrior nation going to conquer the Canaanites, but that's where the Lord's sending us. Two impossible tasks. Oh, yeah. In our flesh, nothing but fear. Hear me. We have an impossible task. One, free the body of Christ from self-love, from disobedience, from self-centered, non-evangelistic living. Two, go and conquer Portland. Go and conquer Oregon. Go and conquer the United States. Go and conquer the known world. Bring every Canaanite to the one true God through Jesus Christ, the one name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. Our mission is not so different. Much of the church is enslaved to fear, enslaved to disinterest, enslaved to getting their best life now, enslaved to self-love. And our job is, one, to get free ourselves, and two, to free other Christians. You're not to be a slave of this world. You're not to be a slave of your flesh. You are a doulos, a blood-bought slave of Jesus Christ. He is your king. He is your master. He is your commander. And he commands you to go, therefore, and turn the world upside down. But wait, that won't work. Now, that's the very heart of Moses. That's the very heart of Jonah. Jonah's heart was a little different. He was confused. Wait, that will work. That was Jonah. Oh, no, they'll repent and you'll have mercy. Let's follow the text. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And you might have just been saying to me in your own head and heart. I hope you weren't saying that out loud. Who am I to turn Portland upside down? Pastor, have you seen the Portlanders? They're savages. Half the time they run around naked. They're giants in the land. Have you seen Portland? They don't believe in God. They're atheists. How can I talk to them about God? They're agnostics. They don't believe anything. How can I talk to them about any truth? They're Buddhists. They're Hindus. They're Muslim. How can I talk to them about Jesus Christ? Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Hear Jesus. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you not see the similarity here? I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. Do you want a sign that Jesus was with his church? Do you want a sign that Jesus was with the church of Jesus Christ as they went and made disciples and taught them to learn to observe all that he commanded? Do you want a sign? The fact that you're sitting here is all the sign you need. 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe. Don't tell me Christ's gospel does not work. Don't tell me the Great Commission does not turn the world upside down. Don't tell me 
That going, therefore, and preaching Christ boldly in every place does not result in sinners getting saved. The history books are full of it. The history of every revival is full of it. Whether it's revival in a city or revival in a state or revival in a nation, it's when God's people believe God and obey God and go, therefore. We can't simply look out and see countless threats coming at us and pull back in fear, and run, and hide, and wait for the rapture, wait for Jesus to return, or or wait for the post-millennials to conquer the earth in Jesus' name. We need to go in Jesus' name, believing that Christ's gospel will conquer every heart for whom Christ died. And believing that the reason we're left here on this earth is for that purpose. Because that's the truth. And hear me, hear me. We like to say this to political liberals. I'm going to say it to Christian liberals. The facts don't care about your feelings. The facts of God's purpose for creating the heavens and the earth, the glory of God and the redemption of sinners, the facts of the Great Commission don't care about our fearful feelings. The truth is the truth. And we must obey the truth. The King is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and we must obey the truth. So God says to Moses, I will certainly be with you. Moses says, who am I? Who am I? God says, I will certainly be with you. It's not about you. It's about God. It's not your power. You can't convince anyone to repent and confess Christ as Lord, but you can proclaim the word of God and faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the spirit regenerates the dead soul. The spirit illuminates the blind eyes. And all whom he is calling will come. But how are they here without a preacher? I will certainly be with you. This shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. In other words, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Pharaoh will let them go. When it happens, and you're back here on this mountain with me, you'll know. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Moses pulls back like so many of us do. Who am I? Well, it's not who you are. It's who God is. And God says, I'll be with you. And God says, there will be success. And when you see the success, you'll, you'll know the truth of my words. We see the success of Christ's church in the earth. We see the success of his gospel. We see it right here in this room. And yet we disbelieve and pull back. And when the culture opposes us, when a post-Christian, now anti-Christ culture opposes Christ and us in the service of Christ, the danger is, the great danger is fear. Because fear leads to rebellion. We'll not obey the Great Commission. We'll not obey our king. If you won't obey the king, is the king your king? That does come into question now, doesn't it? We might find ourselves wandering for 40 years until death and find that he was not our king at all, we might find ourselves hearing what? Go from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, who did Jesus say that to? 
People who used his name in vain? People that were irreligious and irreputable? No, people who said, Lord, Lord, did we not do many signs and wonders? Did, did we not do a bunch of spiritual things? Go from me, you who practice lawlessness. Hear me, if the whole reason God created the heavens and the earth was for his glory and redemption, if Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, if Christ Jesus died and rose again, and before he ascended to sit at the right hand of God as the one mediator between God and men, he said, go therefore and make disciples and I'll be with you. And we don't do that? Are we standing on good ground when we call him our Lord? That's not solid ground. Let's look to Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Well, suppose um, they say, you know, the Great Commission was fine for the early church, but it really doesn't work now. Suppose they say, you know, the public proclamation of the gospel was fine for the early church, but, you know, people are more sophisticated than that now. Suppose they say that, you know, cold turkey, just, you know, talking to people, whether it's at work or across the fence in the backyard or, or, you know, wherever about Jesus, you know, maybe years ago, back in the 50s, you know, that that sort of thing would work. But now, you know, people are, especially in this area, it's kind of regional. You know, they're, they're very opposed to God here. There's kind of a, you know, atheistic spirit here, kind of a, uh, a Big Bang cosmology, um, evolutionary mindset. And so you kind of got to work it in. And once they know how much you care, they'll care how much you know. Right? And we've got all these well-reasoned justifications to submit to our fear and rebel against Christ and to give up the ground, to give up the ground, to give up the ground. But hear me, Satan hasn't given up the ground. Satan hasn't given up the fight. And his soldiers are fighting. And they're coming for you. They're coming for you. They're coming for your children and your grandchildren. They are coming. And we have too long cried, peace, peace, when there can be no peace. Getting our best life now. Just trying to have our quiet little worship service, our quiet little Christianity, our quiet little life. And therefore, we now have a post-Christian society. No, no. We now have an antichrist society. I used to say a decade ago we had a post-Christian society. Now we have an antichrist society. And they're coming for us. They are at war. And still so many Christians think it's peacetime. It's not peacetime. It's wartime. But we want peace and prosperity. And so we fear the war. We fear the battle. We fear those serving Satan passionately. We fear their scowls. And so we pull back, we rebel against Christ in our fear. Instead of pressing in and facing Pharaoh and facing the Canaanites. And turning the world upside down. So Moses said, suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Hear me. There's a temptation within me to fear other pastors, non-evangelistic rebel pastors who will, they will only share the gospel when somebody begs them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will not do the work of the evangelist as the Bible commands them as pastors to do unless they are begged by someone. You'll never find them on the streets. You won't find them on a doorstep. 
You won't find them with a sign. You won't find them handing out tracts. You won't find them turning the world upside down or filling their city with the doctrine of Christ because they're not going to do it. They're not going to obey. And they scorn those who do. They mock them. And the same men, men I love, they will quote George Whitfield sermon after sermon after sermon as a hero of the faith, but they'll condemn any man who ministers in the same manner that George Whitfield ministered the gospel today. George Whitfield was hated in this day. You know who he was hated by? Clergy. Many, many pulpits closed to George Whitfield. He was disreputable because he was preaching the gospel in the open air all across America and much of Europe. And yet, today he's a hero. A hero to many who would never, ever, ever emulate him. It's shameful. And it's a gross intellectual, theological, spiritual disconnect. May God grant repentance to the church in America and the West that at some point called off the war, at some point justified disobeying the King of Kings in His final command. And now, now we're just trying to hold on to our pulpits. We're just trying to keep our doors open in North America. But we won't long succeed if we don't take the land. They will not tolerate those doors being open. They will not tolerate this Bible being preached in this pulpit or any other. They won't tolerate you proclaiming this Bible to your children and teaching them the worldview therein. that says boys are boys and girls are girls and homosexuality is an abomination. It's a perversion that damns the soul. They're not going to tolerate that. They will criminalize you as parents. They'll criminalize me as a preacher. They'll criminalize every biblical church. Oh, but we'll just be online. We'll just have an online outreach. Who listens to sermons online generally? Christians, praise God. Now, sometimes non-believers wander in and listen. That's great. But we are called to go to them where they can't get away, to the Athenian squares of the world. I'm sure they can run away. We don't tie them up. (laughs) And we have been given in America this amazing thing called the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, which primarily was for the church of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of God's word and God's gospel. And we have squandered that great gift. But whether we have the great gift of the First Amendment or not, we have the great gift and the standing command of Christ to go there for. And so Moses says, suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. I don't care what other pastors do or other churches Christ's command is is explicit it's clear we must obey Christ and praise God there are other churches there are other pastors Uh, praise God just last month I had the joy at the beginning of this month of standing down in Pastor Brian Carver's church and, and he and his fellow elders are doing this work And it's a rare thing, mind you. It's a rare and beautiful thing. I'm so blessed to see that God is raising up other young men. There's a pastor named John Smith in Washington State. And there are others. But John Smith, a young pastor with a heart for the truth and saying to the body of Christ, follow me as I follow Christ. And going there for and turning his little town in central Washington upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? The town either loves him or hates him. But this man is full of love and full of truth. 
just like Jesus, full of grace and truth, following Jesus. And people either hated or loved Jesus. Nobody was neutral. So the Lord says to Moses, verse 2, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. He said, cast it to the ground. And it became a great serpent, and Moses fled from it. He said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. He reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. He put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. He put it in his bosom again. He drew it out of his bosom. Behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be... If they do not believe you, says the Lord to Moses, nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign, it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So he, he protesteth. He said, Lord, what did they say the Lord didn't send you? Well, here, here are three miracles. Here are three miracles that you can perform at any time. They question whether or not I sent you. But, 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 but I'm not eloquent. We are so much like Moses. We want miracles. We want power. Now, the Lord's not going to give you power to display except the power of regeneration. That power is on display regularly. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And dead souls live and they repent and they put off their God-hating ways. They put off their BLM ways. They put off their homosexual ways. They put off their fornicating ways. They put off their rebellion. And they submit to Christ as Lord. And they rise to serve Him. Evidencing a glorious miracle of regeneration. New birth in Christ. That miracle is readily available. But we're so much like Moses. Given the miracle... Then we say, O oh Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, I have no claim on being a great preacher or the greatest preacher in any sense, but I'm a great preacher in a relative sense, relative to who I once was, the man, or young man at least, who failed speech because I refused to stand up before people absolutely refused to stand up before people and say anything in class. So what do you get for that? You get an F. You can't pass speech without standing up and saying something in front of class. And so you get an F. You see, I had nothing to say. Now I have something to say. Thus saith the Lord. And I don't just have the joy and privilege of standing up here with you. I get to stand up before all sorts of people. People who don't necessarily want to hear the message. You know, in college... College, post-Marine Corps, post-salvation, do you know I took speech again? I got an A+. You know the difference? In high school, I was dead in sin and trespass. I only loved me, which is why I wouldn't stand before anyone and dare risk embarrassing me. In college, I loved the Lord. And so you know what my first speech was? My assigned speech? Who are you? That was the assigned speech. Well, who am I? I'm a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I stood and preached the gospel to the class, handed out tracts afterwards in a secular college. That's what Christ does. He regenerates. He changes you to where, yes, you were afraid. I, I can't speak. I, I'm not eloquent. I, I don't know what to say. Well, you figure out what to say. 
If you know nothing else, you know John 3.16 is true, and you can start there and work your way out. I mean, my, my little precious grandchildren have all memorized Genesis 1.1. Could we not start at the beginning with folks? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can we not tell them there's a creator and they're accountable to him? Can we not tell them that? Fundamental truth, precious truth they desperately need. I don't know what to say. Tell them about the God you know and love and the God who saved you through his son. If you are saved, you know what to say. You may not have memorized the scriptures just yet, but you should get busy working on it. But you know what to say. And even should you lose the powers of speech as one of our dear brothers is, you know, he's taking great joy still. And that brother stood with me, and he's a meek brother, but he has stood with me on the streets of Portland amongst the savages and proclaimed the gospel alongside his meek wife. Beautiful picture. Downtown Portland, Saturday market, this six-foot-something giant of a man, and little Angela holding her ground, joyfully giving him the gospel. With her, I mean, she, she had her neck craned so far back to actually look him in the face as he towered over her. He had nothing but respect for her and listened to her. It was just beautiful because it's not the size and it's not your intellect and it's not ultimately how much you've memorized, but faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's just faithfulness to go, therefore, and take them a revelation of Christ. And the Lord is pleased to use that. But back to Rocky, losing the powers of speech, his great joy, and with smiles. He has told me this at least twice over. He says, at least I can hand out tracts and hold a sign for Jesus. Should I not be able to speak? And he's got a plan through his phone and this program to enter in the gospel so he can push a button and share the gospel audibly with anyone he comes across. Praise God. And they better listen. They had better listen. I have no doubt their judgment will be greater should they reject that testimony. So the Lord gives him these miracles. And nevertheless, he still says, I'm not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute and the deaf and the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, oh Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Send someone else. I'll pray for them. I'll fund them. Send anyone but me. That's Moses, the greatest prophet of Israel, the rescuer of Israel. And that's you and I until God really gets a hold of our hearts. And then we say what? Here am I. Send me. Now, I'm I'm not legalistically saying that you have to be with me when I go forth, but we as Christians are the Lord's witnesses. And we all have our realm of responsibility. And it's not legalism to say you should obey Christ your Lord and his great commission. No, that's just biblical. And that's just Christian living. And all of these excuses are all born out of fear and self-love, which leads to rebellion. Now, praise God, Moses was God's man. And so ultimately, ultimately, 
Moses got on board and Moses went in obedience to the Lord. And in God's grace, Israel listened. And 10 plagues later, Pharaoh relented and let Israel go. 10 plagues, miracle after miracle after miracle. Israel witnessed them. Egypt witnessed them. And then in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it came to pass, Exodus 13, 17, it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so the Lord had lessons of faith to teach them. And the Lord has lessons of faith to teach you. In his grace, he teaches us faith lesson after faith lesson. He grows us stronger and stronger. And he meant to teach them faith by bringing them to the Red Sea. He meant to teach them faith. But they come to the Red Sea, and then what's at their back? The Egyptian army. And what do they cry out? Oh, Moses, you brought us out here to die. And the response is ultimately, wait and see the hand of the Lord. Ten plagues later, following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea and the Lord must do this miracle lest they kill Moses on the spot and return to slavery. In Exodus 14.10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And hear me, there will be many Christians who would rather serve tyrants and close down their churches, submit under these God-hating mandates that are just starting with these medical mandates. Just starting. This agenda is thorough. The tyranny is starting in the medical field. It will quickly move well beyond that if we allow it to succeed in the medical field. And so much of the church wants to submit to the tyranny. They want to have peace with the state. They want to worship by permission of the state. We do not worship the king by permission of the state. We do not worship the Lord of glory by permission of the state. We worship by command of Christ our king and the one true God. Regardless of tyrannical state mandates, declarations, edicts, or even should they one day pass laws. So they were very afraid, it says in verse 10. They cried out to the Lord, but not in faith, not in prayer, in complaint. They said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, this is mockery, this is sarcasm. Have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Mind you, there were some, there were many, in fact, if not most, of the early church, when persecution really struck, that abandoned the Apostle Paul. They wanted nothing to do with him. Why? Because there was trouble around the Apostle Paul. He was always getting arrested, and they didn't want trouble on them. 
So they distanced themselves from this faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul has to write to young pastor Timothy and say, quit being timid. Stop being timid. That's not a direct quote, but that that was the gist of what he was saying. And later said, do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. It is human nature to want to make peace with the powers that be to survive, to prosper. And the Lord calls us under his infinite authority to subdue the powers that be beneath him, to call them beneath him, to obey him above them. When they contradict him, we obey him, not them. Verse 11 here in Exodus 14, they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord did fight for them. The same sea that he parted, that they might pass through with a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left and dry land in between, that same sea came crashing down on Pharaoh and his army, swallowing them up and destroying them. And they beheld the glory and might of the Lord. And you would think after 10 plagues, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, a wall of water on the right and the left, dry land in between, and then the sea crushing their enemy. You would think they would never again wander from faith. They would never again succumb to fear and cry out against God and against Moses. For we find them after crossing the sea and after the defeat of Pharaoh's army, we find them in Exodus 15, worshiping the Lord. It says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, and it's this this wonderful worship song. It's, it's magnificent. And they, they recount all of God's mighty works and his triumph over their enemies. And then toward the end of the chapter, verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Ten plagues, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, parting the Red Sea, destruction of Egypt's army, are all quickly forgotten. That wonderful worship song, Miriam's tambourine, all forgotten, and they cry out against Moses. And the Lord, in his mercy... And his kindness cleanses the water that they might drink. Now surely they have learned faith. They've learned not to succumb to fear and to rebel against God and God's servant Moses. Well, Exodus 16. They journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to the children of Israel, 
Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Fear led to rebellion against God and God's servant Moses. You see, Moses, by the grace of God, conquered his fear, obeyed God, went to Israel, led Israel out. And Israel went through seasons of faith, tambourines, dancing in the desert, to fear. You brought us out here to die. And rebellion and chastisement. So the Lord, in verse 11 here, Exodus 16, 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying at twilight, you shall eat meat. In the morning, you should be filled with bread. And so, verse 13, it was that quails came at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there was on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as, they, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. What was it? It was manna. Manna from heaven. A picture of Christ, bread from heaven. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded that every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons let every man take for those who are in his tent. Verse 31 says its name is manna. They called its name manna. So the Lord gave bread from heaven, dropped quail out of the sky that they might eat. In Exodus chapter 17, now surely they've learned that God will provide for their thirst and provide for their bellies. Exodus 17, they're thirsty again. Then the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord and the people thirst there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That is the pattern of sin and that is the nature of humanity when we succumb to fear. Verse four, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So sad, so tragic. So human, because we're infected with sin. And sin leads to fear, not faith. Leads to pulling back, not pressing in. Leads to anxiety and complaining, not thanksgiving. We find this pattern continue with Israel. And in Numbers chapter 11 Verse 1, it says, When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord had heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. You see, God is gracious, but he's also holy. And he responded graciously to their thirst. He responded graciously to their hunger as a faithful father. But they continued in their fear that led them to rebellion again and again. And now he brings chastisement in the form of fire from heaven. And many die 
and Moses intercedes and the fires cease. Verse 4, Numbers 11, it says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all to eat except this manna before our eyes. And some of you have heard me paraphrase this before, but let me do it again. All we have is this stinking manna. There's nothing before us to eat except this manna before our eyes. They are despising this miracle bread from heaven provided from the hand of God that is a type of Christ. And saints, if we're not careful, we will go down that same road of fear, unbelief, and rebellion. And when the Lord blesses us again, And again and again, it shows himself to be a faithful father, lavishing blessing on us. And again and again, we go down that same road of fear and unbelief and rebellion. Eventually, the Lord will chasten us. For he is faithful. Because should he not chasten us, we will graduate collectively or individually to saying there's nothing at all except this stinking manna. There's nothing at all for us Christians. We have no hope at all except for the stinking manna from heaven, Jesus Christ, and eternal life in him. We're in danger of devaluing the manna of heaven that is Jesus Christ in the same way they devalued the manna from heaven that was that bread that kept them alive, that miracle bread. Jesus Christ is the eternal miracle bread, the bread of life that will keep us eternally alive as children of God forever and ever and ever under the fullness of God's love. And because of temporal trial or tribulation or hardship or the hatred or opposition of the world, we would fear and we would rebel. And we would either verbally or through action effectually cry out, all we have is this stinking manna. All we have is a certain hope of heaven through Jesus Christ. And what we really want is peace and prosperity in our best life now. Oh, may God guard us from fear and hold us fast in faith and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not a Thursday that comes around once a year in November. Thanksgiving is the Christian disposition that by the grace of God we daily live and abide in. We must. For to do less is to abide in fear and unbelief which will lead inevitably to rebellion even against Christ himself. The manna from heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the lessons we learn walking with Israel, walking with Moses in the wilderness, may we not soon forget them. May we never, never devalue and blaspheme the manna of heaven, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, our King, our Lord, our God, our Savior, the only name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. May we love him more and better. May we obey him. May we press in, not pull back. May our faith grow, not diminish. May we go by your grace and turn the world upside down. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.